save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger, and I'm pleased this week to bring you a special episode as we celebrate this podcast's first anniversary with a guest I can only describe as unique, Chris Lukacs, the CEO of AKCG Public Relations Counselors, a true expert in the field of crisis communications, and perhaps most importantly, my colleague and my boss. I thought having Chris join us would help to kill two birds with one stone because in addition to celebrating the one-year anniversary of the debut of What to Say When Things Get Tough, which is actually tomorrow, June 17th, July 1st will also mark my first anniversary with AKCG. Chris and I discuss what he's learned during his many years of helping organizations and individuals weather crises when they strike, including the need to respond to an emerging crisis within 15 minutes which may seem like an impossible task, but which in this day and age of social media and 24-hour news coverage is absolutely essential. And finally, Chris offers advice for young people interested in a career in public relations, as well as his thoughts on how young professionals can grow in their careers. Over the years, Chris has won many awards, perhaps none more prestigious than being named his alma mater, Rowan University's Distinguished Alumnus in 2018. He also serves on the boards of directors of WHYY, the Philadelphia region's leading public media affiliate, and the Philadelphia Public Relations Association, the region's independent association for public relations professionals. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I always like to start off asking my guests sort of where they hail from. How did your folks or your grandparents make it over here to this country? Yeah, through Ellis Island, as as many of my uh, as many of my northern New Jersey contemporaries did. Uh, that's going back a ways, though. That's um, that was when my last name is uh, Lukach, L-U-K-A-C-H. That's back when it was. L-U-C-A-S-C-Z, some, some variation of that, that the uh, Americanized tongue, the Anglicized tongue could not, could not tackle, nor can I tackle it today. But uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, my, my family, I'm, I'm, I did one of those um, 23andMe's uh, fairly recently, and, and it affirmed uh, what a Eastern and Western European hodgepodge uh, my, my, my lineage represents, though they all seem to wind up in New York, New Jersey, uh, pretty much around the same time. And where did you grow up? I grew up, uh, I've, I've always been uh, a big city suburban. I, I grew up about five miles outside of Manhattan in northern New Jersey, right around Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, went to school down at Rowan University and uh, college rather, and, and haven't been able to move more than a couple of miles away from it ever since. I, I settled in South Jersey, met my wife at school. Got my first job uh, here, which is here, actually, the, the firm 
we're both at today um, through a college relationship and uh, and stuck around South Jersey. It's a it's a different pace. It's um, but 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 still distinctly New Jersey. That's one of the things about New Jersey, uh, Leonard. When you spend a little more time here, you, you you really do notice the dividing line around exit seven. It's not just what we call Taylorham or Pork Roll. It's uh, it's culturally a bit different, but both distinctly Jersey in its own way. And I see that on our very own website uh, under your bio that you have a BN Communications with a specialization in PR, but I noticed that you also have a master's in legal studies. Were you torn between PR and law at one point? So much of our work, Leonard, yours and my work is in the area of, of crisis communications. And so often when we're doing crisis communications work, we're, we're brought on by legal counsel. Oftentimes we're retained by legal counsel. And that is so we can advise on the uh, communications implications of the legal strategy. What this does is, in theory, extends to our collective work, a modicum of attorney-client privilege, though if you look at the case law surrounding that, that's that's not really a sure thing. Uh, there's, there's very iffy and, and very porous borders around what, what kind of privilege can be extended to PR professionals like ourselves. But because we so often work with counsel, I, I felt that rather than sort of double down on my PR consulting uh, education, uh, I'd, I'd be better suited to try to understand a little bit more about the justice system. It's not uncommon for an attorney to have us on the phone call and say, uh, well, as soon as we, um, as soon as we hear back on the motion to summary judgment, we'll file a writ. And you know, I'm just furiously Googling on the other end to, to try and get a sense of what that means through the lens of reputational risk. So I, I thought it would, would give me a little bit of a leg up in understanding uh, the justice system. And, and in, indeed it has. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, I mean, it's not uncommon for people like us, professionals like us, to really get exposed to broader perspectives of the marketing mix. But for us in, in the crisis communications world, at least with it being a sizable portion of our business, uh, we really can benefit from, from having a, a, a better foundation in law. It just makes, makes for more informed counsel. And that, that's why I did that. And that's why I, it was only just a few years ago that I, um, that I did that program through Drexel. And I, I would certainly recommend it to other PR professionals. You can't hurt having a better understanding of the law. Well, and as you mentioned, particularly in a crisis situation, it's often the lawyers who are in the lead, and we have to find a way to, to work with them and, and influence their thinking to the extent that we can. I think we get, we get painted sometimes as having this, uh, this confrontational relationship with legal counsel on behalf of a client. Uh, and and it's, it's true that we represent different interests. I mean, we, we are not working in managing the court of law, we're managing perceptions in the court of public opinion. But at the end of the day, while we may have different methods for pursuing this, we want the be- we want the same thing. And most of the attorneys with whom we work with any frequency are, are not doing the knee-jerk lawyerly thing of saying no comment in response to media inquiries, which is fail-safe from, from a legal risk perspective, but, a, but horrific from a reputational risk perspective. Most of the attorneys we work with are, are not advising their clients to say no comment because they know that whether or not poor communications exacerbates legal risk, 
they don't want the client to suffer reputational risk either. And at the same time, we don't shoot from the hip on communications in such a way that is you know, threatening legal consequences. So there's a lot of overlap in these, in these overlapping circles. I mean, we, we want the same things good legal counsel wants the vast majority of instances. There are, from time to time, we'll work with attorneys that are coerced into uh, <laughs> into bringing on communications counsel and don't really support the principles. And those tend not to be terribly long-lasting or terribly fruitful relationships. You know, we, we have to be deferential to legal counsel almost all the time. And I understand that. But sometimes, sometimes, Leonard, we can just, we can just make a a few tweaks, a few refinements, a, a, a few turns of the lever that put our client in a much better position. And, and we, we value that, that ability and that partnership. I've certainly found that when I've been brought in by the legal team, it's because they recognize the need for improved communication and often see in the client a lack of understanding of the need. So yes, that always goes uh, more smoothly than if the client brings in communications to work with the, with the legal team, then there's tends to more friction in my experience. Uh, but I've been very lucky, I have to say. I have worked on a number of fairly complex crises with enormous legal implications. And I have to say, the lawyers I've worked with have always been very professional, very deferential, very open to the counsel that we provide. You know, sometimes they decide that for legal reasons, particularly when there's litigation, either going on or imminent, um, they'll make different decisions, but always with a, an explanation and a, uh, and a respect um, for what we do. So, Yeah, you know, there's, there's two aspects to a, a good relationship with legal counsel, right? And one is that, do they value that success in the court of public opinion mm-hmm. is a separate function from success in the court of law? That they don't have to be on an equal level of importance, but they, they, they are separate functions. And do they see communications as something that should be involved in the greater strategic discussion? Are, are they recommending legal strategies with consideration toward reputational risk? And, and we've dealt with at the firm situations where that was not the case. We dealt with a situation once where in-house counsel for one of our clients uh, negotiated a settlement and had done so in a way that slightly reduced legal consequences and slightly reduced the financial settlement. We're talking five figures, no, sorry, four figures uh, of a reduction in a financial settlement in a way that really handcuffed the communications team in a way that, that left the communications team to try and take on the world. I, I'm sorry, I can't get more specific on that example, but you know, it can't be a, here's the situation I've created for you, communications people, now do your work. It should be a, let's get you involved in the discussion. Let's let's make sure that we're thinking about reputational risk as we're defining our legal strategy. And yeah, we don't, like I said, we don't expect to be the more prominent consideration, but we do hope we're brought in at the right time. We have jumped ahead here a little bit. I do want to go back and ask, uh, communications, is that what you said when someone asked you at the age of four uh, or five what you wanted to be what you, when you grew up? Uh, how long have you known this was the field for you? I'm pretty sure that at that point I was on, on path to be a Ghostbuster uh, back at age four or five, um, is, is dating myself perhaps. But the, um, you know, I, I declared an English major. My parents were both teachers. I kind of just assumed I would be a teacher as well. And uh, about halfway through my undergrad degree, I decided I needed a little bit of change. And I went to the Career Center 
that they had at at Rowan, which is just a few blocks from where our, our headquarters is now. And uh, I think I looked in a book somewhere that you could be a concert promoter with a public relations degree. And I thought, hey, that's neat. I like concerts. I go to a lot of them. I sacrifice my hearing for them. I, I let's let's do that. Let's let's go down that line of work. What I found after I declared was that, um, and and by the way, it's unusual uh, for students to declare for public relations when they're coming in. You know, the vast majority of students in most public relations programs get there after they've already. Uh, as, as a result of changing majors or having come in undeclared because it's just not a very well-defined profession. If, if you see students that do come in to that profession uh, declaring as freshmen, they generally get there because they have a relative or a family member or a parent that is a, a, a public relations practitioner. So uh, as I got there, I found Rowan actually does have a, um, a really terrific and highly regarded uh, public relations program, especially uh, its chapter of the Public Relations Student Society of America, and uh, I got I got sucked into that. I sort of fell in love with the uh, with the profession as it relates to uh, using communications as a bottom line business discipline. I uh, never got into concert promotion, and what the funny part about that is is um, I I can handle with a very steady hand most severe crisis situations, but I have uh, no tolerance for, no appetite for, and, and no ability to succeed at special event planning. It is, it is the one area of the profession that uh, I, I know my limitations. We have skilled people who are have the level of detail orientation and forethought and planning to get that done here at the firm. Uh, I, I am not one of them. If you ask me to book a DJ and a, a sandwich tray and a photographer, I will, I will not sleep for nights in advance of said event. So the, the, the aspect of the profession that sort of brought me into it uh, is is one that I've I've long ago sort of moved on from. Well, it's interesting that, that that's exactly what my daughter wants to do. Who, she just graduated from Maryland with a communications degree, and event marketing is her is uh, what she's interested in doing. So she can she can fill in that gap perhaps someday. Did, did she go in knowing she wanted a communications degree? Is that uh... no? That's a very good question. I think so. And as you just pointed out, that's sort of family business. I don't know if I've ever walked through this with you, but I come from a media family. My great-grandfather owned movie theaters uh, on the east side of Cleveland, and uh, my grandfather, my father's father, uh, owned one of those theaters and managed it. One of the claims of fame our family can make is that Paul Newman worked as an usher at uh, that theater, the Fairmont Theater. Oh, wow. When he was a teenager, I always I had met him because I'm named for my grandfather. So if I had had a chance to introduce myself to him, I have to believe that he would have said something like, you know, that's really funny. I worked for a Leonard Greenberger uh, on the east side of the Cleveland. Would you be related to, would you happen to be related to him? And of course I would say yes, but that never came to be. So that's just, that's uh, just the fantasy conversation that. Uh... Yeah, and he passed away now. Now it's too late. It'll never happen. But uh, my father worked in the newspaper advertising business his entire career. My brother's a broadcaster. <clears throat> I'm in PR. So I think it's in, it's in the blood. Presumably, I, I suppose your, your daughter's generation would be the first one where communications, public relations would be a, would be a viable course of study. I mean, it, it is still a fairly nascent but growing area of, of professional study and professional expertise. And you asked me earlier about master's programs, advanced degrees. Uh, I, I, I hate to generalize here, um, but 
a lot of times advanced degrees in communications don't really elevate the learning beyond the undergrad degrees. Sometimes, you know, you'll find in a master's program for public relations, and this is true at, at many schools, I've looked into this, it's essentially an accelerated track for an undergrad degree rather than an extension of or an escalation of the undergrad degree. And it's 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 interesting to, to see where our profession's heading in terms of how how evolved it is, how in-depth it is, and and whether you know it, it's it's growth as a bottom line business oriented discipline of its own is uh, how that's going to change in the next couple of uh, couple of years. You mentioned that you connected with what at the time was called an inclined communications group through a college contact, I believe you said, and you I, I've been there your whole career. You are now the CEO and majority owner of the firm. But you mentioned, you know, young people and uh, how things are changing. And with any luck, we may have some younger listeners tune in. My daughter will in any event. <laughs> and I know, or at least hope our interns, our current interns will listen, maybe some of our older interns. So what advice do you have for a college student or even somebody younger who may be interested in a career in PR? One thing I would say, and this is not uh, this is not me pandering uh, to our own intern recruits and the like, but uh, I, I'm a big believer that you benefit more from agency experience than from any other first, second, third year work within the profession. Agencies are a phenomenal place to to learn, to hone your craft, to understand the breadth of it, to understand the extent to which public relations and communications is, uh, frankly, a sales discipline as much as it is a strategic discipline, which I, I have to admit that it is. It's a great way to work on multiple clients, to understand multiple client dynamics, to understand what you what you can benefit from. You get exposure on the agency side into what your in-house counterparts do, what your nonprofit counterparts do. Sometimes, you know, agency um, agency has has a uh, a perception of not paying as much as as a corporate opportunity or a nonprofit opportunity in which you're going to wear a great number of hats. First of all, I don't I don't know that to be true. Suppose it's possible that it is. The it truly is a, a master's course in in agency, and my my experience has been in the profession, I should say, and my experience has been that whether or not you come out wanting to have an agency career, you have a, a much more specific concept of the type of work within the profession you want. It's it's not a you're not investing five years, seven years in job one, and then saying, well, let me try something different, but it's culturally so different, you know, it's, it really hones your, uh, your appetite. It hones your comfort level. It, you come out of even just a couple of years in agency experience or a couple internship opportunities with such clarity around the profession. And, and honestly, I mean, ours is a very intangible profession. Ours is one that it's difficult to grasp. It's um, very, uh, the experience you have as a communicator is very dependent on the culture of your first career, your understanding of it. You know, you fall into patterns where perhaps kind of hinted at this topic, but perhaps you don't have quite the seat at the table as a communicator that you should. You fall into some where communications is valued or not valued or devalued, or there's there's too much hierarchy, there's too little structure. There's any number of cultures in which you work. And um, it, it can be treacherous or problematic to form an opinion based on on one experience, but agency is going to give you that broad exposure so you can sort of see 
uh, the bigger picture. I, I couldn't advocate for it enough. I, I started an agency with that in mind. I, I happened to stick around. A nice confluence of circumstances uh, kept me here in what's practically my first agency career um, until now and, and for, the, uh, for the foreseeable future. But uh, I, I, I always encourage folks to, to do that. And, and really even do that, do that before you go get your master's. Just, just try your hand at agency a little while, get that clarity around what is right for you. Switch topics here, or maybe focus is a better word, and, and talk a little bit more about you know, what what you and and the firm does day to day. So let's say I'm the VP of communications at a hospital, and I call AKCG because I have a crisis I need to deal with. You know, without giving away too many trade secrets, you walk us through how an engagement with a firm like ours works. How do you and the firm help a client navigate through a crisis? Well, the firm, as you know, we, we sort of work in, in three different buckets. One would be uh, sort of thought leadership, media relations, helping uh, differentiate and distinguish uh, uh, leaders within organizations. And, and I, I don't want to devalue that part of our of our business, though I know that's, that's not where the question was directed. So having said that, I'll, I'll move on to answering the question. We are big believers that crisis communications programs merit attention, not only to responding to the issues that arise, but also to, um, to making sure that the organization is primed to respond effectively, quickly, uh, in a manner that is consistent with their values and consistent with their voice. And in a sort of the old way that, that we ran uh, AKCG back, you know, around the time that I joined and, and around the time that was uh, the early aughts, perhaps, uh, the conventional way of running a crisis communications firm was that you set up a, a red phone that blinks like those old Batman episodes and um, you, you answer it when, when someone calls and then you, be, you, you dive in with them and you help guide them through that situation. And then at the end of the day, they, they call you and they say, hey, that was great. I'm, I'm so happy we had you on board. I hope we never have to talk ever, ever again, because that was a miserable experience. <laughs> you, you, you made it stink a little bit less, but it stunk. Um, that's kind of the traditional way of working. And we've tried to sort of guide our clients away from those types of engagements for any number of reasons. Number one, because it, it does them a disservice. Well, I'll, I'll take a step back. Number one, because it's no fun to run a business that way. But number two, because it does our clients a disservice. And by that, I mean that the, the media landscape, which is a, a prominent component of crisis response, though not the only one, the media landscape uh, has moved to the point over the past couple decades where it is so quick moving, the desire for and need for information at the onset of a crisis is insatiable. And clients need to be to communicate within the standard we use is, is about 15 minutes of the onset of a crisis. You know, Leonard, you and I have been talking for 20 already. It's not, it's not a lot of time. And we have to be primed and in a position to respond quickly. So that means we like to tailor our engagements, not only to helping our clients respond to the issues that arise, but helping them equip themselves to respond as quickly as they can to the issues that have not yet arisen. What does that mean? It means working with them to build crisis communications plans that are actionable. There are too many crisis communications plans out there. And, and if your listeners have one, I encourage them to, to, to look at theirs. There are too many crisis plans that are just repositories of policy and repositories of contact sheets. 
And uh, we had a client um, share with us once, they, they asked us to take a look at the crisis plan they had. And they said, well, I think it's pretty good, but since we're working together, let's get your perspective. And we looked at it and it's like page one, um, what is a crisis? What are the media? Why would the media call? And it's as if we had the, the power in a moment of crisis to say, uh, you know what, hold on, let me, let me read this 400 page document and then you can ask me your questions when you're done. You know, this is not actionable. We need crisis plans that are actionable and that tends to be a component of our work. We wanna augment their communications team with, with our counselors in such a way where we can be helping them respond to issues that arise. And then I think another component of that is helping to train the antenna of both the communications team and the broader leadership team to spot crises as they arise. Um, it's not just about calling for outside help when a situation has gotten so grave that we can finally all acknowledge that we're in a crisis. It's about starting the wheels of crisis response uh, at, the, at the nucleus stage, right? At the, at the earliest possible stage uh, at which we know that reputational risk exists. And the benefit to this type of relationship is that we get to know a client's voice and that we get to communicate with a client in a way, a client's audiences, I should say, whom we now know uh, in a way that is authentic and trusted. And as you know, Leonard, and I've talked about before on your podcast, credibility is so essential in terms of communications. Uh, it does our clients no good if they are issuing in response to a crisis situation something that is generic, something that sounds like a PR person just pulled it off the shelf. We need to understand voice. We need to understand the kinds of crises that this client has faced in the in the weeks, months, and years prior, and let that all come together. So I, it's a very long answer to a very simple question, but for us, we want to force crisis response work into something that is more attentive to crisis preparedness, because it's not just about getting through the crisis moment with the least blowback and the least noise and the least distraction. It's about creating all those cultural efficiencies so that, so that we know how to activate, we know whom to talk to, what voice and tone to use, and to guide the client through that moment more than just reducing damage. As you pointed out early on, being efficient and saving time so that you're not thumbing through the sections on what is the media and how do they work and uh, that kind of thing. We're getting right to it immediately since the amount of time, as you point out, that you generally get to respond to a crisis has uh, reduced down to minutes, if not seconds, depending on the nature of a crisis. So yeah, I think the, I, I like to describe it as living, breathing um, evolving approach to crisis communications that we provide. But I don't want to turn this into too much of a commercial for AKCG, but um, that was very helpful in terms of generally describing how how a, a PR firm, one that specializes in crisis, generally approaches things. So I think that's very helpful. Now I'm going to ask you to, if you can, step into the shoes of prospective client. Now you're on the side of the hospital who's looking for a firm to help them. What advice would you have uh, for a prospective or for a client, a company that's looking for a crisis communications firm? Um, what should they look for? What questions should they ask in helping to determine which firm is going to be the best fit for them? What's, what's funny is crisis, you know, what constitutes a good crisis communications professional? Uh, what, what constitutes a crisis communications professional period? I mean, I think one of the things that they look for, which, which you and I have varying amounts of, is gray hair. <laughs> you know, that tends to be one of the standards they look for. Number two, 
It's like one, the other thing that they tend to look for is is crisis experience. Um, but what's what's funny about that is that it's very easy to have crisis experience. You know, that doesn't mean that we handled it well, right? It's not one one is not a crisis communicator because they've had the the poor luck to to have been embroiled in a crisis. That that doesn't mean that that mean that they learned anything. Doesn't mean that they handled it. Doesn't mean that they navigated it. Um, you know, it's interesting. Crisis communications is one of those one of those skill sets among public relations firm that is treated as as, as so uh, ubiquitous and easy and, and baked into the communications profession that uh, you know everyone sort of claims it as a as a skill set and and I I don't think that it is I I think it's that that's not to say that what we do is is completely unique. Uh, there are many firms that specialize in crisis communications and, and do it very well. One of the things I would I would encourage them to look for is crisis firms that are willing to invest in understanding them. You know, it's it's one thing to have a sort of relationship where where they say, oh, yeah, this is the number you call when something happens and we'll help you through it. It's valuable, of course, to have outside perspective that's that's accessible and guarantees accessibility and has that 24-hour call in line. It's good to have that. It's not a bad thing. But for the reasons I, I kind of touched on earlier, you really want to make sure that your crisis team understands your audiences. You know, you use the, the hospital example, Leonard. Well, it's very different if you're part of a system or an independent hospital. It's different if you're a city hospital or a community hospital. It's different if you're, you know, in a city or working in a, a rural population. It, it's different uh, if you've just undergone two divestitures or you've just made two acquisitions. You know, it's different if you are faith-based or, you know, all these things matter and you want a, a crisis firm that's going to invest in and, and demonstrate interest in knowing all of these distinctions. You know, hospital experience does not mean one can can work in every single sort of dynamic. The last thing I'll say, and, and again, I, I, I too am sensitive, Leonard, to not making your, your podcast into a commercial, but I think this is one of the sort of philosophical dividing lines we have with, with, with clients and with prospective clients in terms of between us and competing firms is how prominently we place media attention and media interest at the heart of our response. And it's one of the sort of challenges about working in public relations. And you and I have talked about this. There's no barrier to entry, really. You know, anyone can say, poof, I'm a public relations consultant and, and, and here I am. A lot of people, as, as I know you have, come to the profession from, from journalism. A lot of people come through studying public relations, any number of ways people, people get here. Surprising number of ex-history majors and English majors in the public relations profession. But because there's not that standard accreditation, that, that fixed uh, seal of whether or not one is qualified, we approach big questions concerning public relations in very different ways. And there are still a lot of practitioners who, who call themselves crisis communicators who think of PR in terms of limiting media coverage, uh, in terms of, 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 of quieting the noise, in terms of calling up the editor and talking them out of running that story. And that's not how we perceive crisis communications. Crisis communications is about protecting and restoring the goodwill that an organization has built up among its audiences. And we have seen, as I know you and I have seen, you and I have seen together, instances where there is 
a ton of media coverage, piles and piles of media coverage, but does not change those bottom line reputational indicators. And there are other examples where there is no media coverage and the client has taken a, a, a reputational lashing uh, because of their response to a situation. And that's that I, I would say is the biggest difference between uh, what we see in ourselves and, and competitors. And again, we're not unique here, but there are a lot of crisis practitioners that still think we need to, to, to quiet down the media or tamp down the media. And if, if that's what your prospective partner is emphasizing, it might not be the right fit for you. I'm going to give you a chance to brag a little from a crisis communications perspective. What's your, what's your proudest accomplishment? Understanding that uh, you may not be able to reveal the name of the actual client, but what was one that you were brought into that was particularly difficult where a reputational, or I should say reputation was really at risk and you were able to um, help the client avoid it or even turn it around? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating question. I, I I'll, I'll stall for a second uh, and say that I, I get a, a, a ton of self-worth from the client's response to the counsel. And sometimes we, we have an ability just by virtue of the kind of counsel that we're giving to tell them something that, that gives them a sense of tremendous control. It gives them a sense of, oh my goodness, that wasn't even on my radar and now I know, now I have the clarity of where I need to take this. Uh, it's just, just yesterday, and this is not my example, just yesterday, I, I was on with a, a school client of ours. We do a lot of work in, in education. And he, he came to me with the presumption that, oh no, now we are forced into this strategy. We have no way forward but to take this path. And, and we were able to sort of advise him in a way that, that says, yes, what about this whole avenue of opportunity in, in, in going this interpersonal route and, and making these phone calls and reaching out to these influencers. And I could just tell from the conversation what a tremendous burden was, was lifted uh, with him. But, uh, you know, I, I would say that my, my proudest moments in crisis communications uh, tend to be when we have uh, not just given the client a sense of peace of mind, but have, have it, it's, it's a little cliched in our profession, but there's any number of, of quotes about what crisis being uh, not just a danger, but also opportunity. And, and there are situations where we can come out of, of navigating this challenge with, with relationships restored. Here's uh, one I'm, in which I'm proud of. We were guiding a client through a, a ransomware situation. They, they had a, a very sensitive, very expansive uh, ransomware attack. They were, they were in a situation where virtually all of their client data had been compromised and they worked with healthcare companies. So by extension, all of their, health, all of their clients' patients' data uh, had, had gone through a compromise. It's, it's a huge vulnerability. It's a huge uh, regulatory hurdle uh, that, that comes ahead. It's a huge reputational risk, not only for themselves, but also for their clients. And uh, because we recommended a strategy that was so interpersonal, that involved so much face-to-face -face and, and over-the-phone contact as best as, as one can do in a pandemic situation, not only did they come out of that situation with minimal damage to the relationships and minimal damage from a compliance standpoint, but they came out of that with better bonds, better understandings with their, with their clients, because rather than sort of embrace this 
distant, here's a letter, here's another letter, uh, our lawyers, lawyers will talk to your lawyers, they saw it as a chance to say, you know what, we can be vulnerable, we can be exposed, we can be, we can be honest and candid in a way that's going to build in you a better sense of trust for who we are. And uh, it's one of the situations where you are standing at the, the precipice of this, uh, this awful uh, situation and forthcoming, you can't see to the other end of this, where I actually have better bonds established with my clients. And that in fact was, was the case. And I think communications, not just, not just our counsel, but the, the team's broader instincts really put them in a, a, on firmer footing than where they began. And, you know, like I said, it's a little cliche to say danger opportunity when you're talking about crises, but it is, it is indeed the case. This is harder, but the opposite question. So is there a case where you feel as though you uh, either made a mistake or missed an opportunity when working with a client? And if you can think of an example there, what lessons did you draw from that experience? Certainly, certainly we've made mistakes. <laughs> you know, we, we, we try to minimize those. I think when those mistakes happen, it's when we, when we underestimate an audience. I, I have learned never to put myself in the situation where I say, well, why would they do that? That doesn't serve their interests. You know, the truth is a lot of times antagonists, groups that are maybe targeting our clients, which is an abundant crisis situation in this era of not only sort of Me Too reckoning, but also social justice reckoning, we, we, t- we tell ourselves, well, well gosh, that, that person would never uh, do that because they'd put themselves in a vulnerable position or a vulnerable position, or uh, this parent would never go to this reporter because they would put their child in a vulnerable position. And we can't presume that everyone involved in a crisis situation follows our same decision-making. I've learned not to make assumptions on behalf of others. You know, we've had relationships go wrong, for sure. We've had relationships where we didn't fit with a client. Generally, where we didn't fit with a client is is when we have recommended uh, strategies that that were not media-centric, and that tended to be what the client wanted. But I wouldn't say those were shortcomings. I I would say for us, the situations I regret are, are when we underestimate someone else's decision-making or, or try to presume they're going to follow the same logical pattern we do. I, I, I don't do that anymore. And I, I expect our team to sort of keep me in check when I start to do that. I hope that makes sense. I know it's kind of intangible. And of course, as I'm answering that question, I'm thinking of one or two examples in my head where, where I know exactly what I'm trying to say, but out of respect for those, for those clients, I'm not getting too specific. That's what I think is the root of, of where we've fallen short. And that makes sense. And fair enough. I would never want to ask you to reveal you know, specific client engagements <laughs> or names, but I always, I thought that might be an interesting way to, you know, as I said, just really sort of draw out more lessons for folks who might be, uh, who are listening that, that can help them to be better practitioners, um, either uh, whether they're you know already in the field and have been here a while, or perhaps are even uh, thinking about it as a, as a potential career path. So I have two more questions for you. And one I have to go back to, which I just uh, looking at my notes, skipped over. But so in 2018, you were named Rowan University's Distinguished Alumnus. That's uh, quite an accomplishment. How uh, Tell us about that. How did that come about? And, and what does that uh, mean? <laughs> what, um, what, what comes along with it? 
Yeah, you get to. Uh, it was really neat. It's it really quite an honor. It's it's an it's an award they give to only to one individual per year, sort of across the the entire university's respective colleges, yeah. and um, they they let you come up and speak at uh, at graduation, which was which was really uh, a thrill. And uh, I was nominated, I suppose, by by one of our colleagues on the staff here, who also happened to be a, a Rowan alum, and and saw the award entry, entry come through. And uh, no, it was, it was an honor. I've been, I've been picked among uh, some uh, notable entrepreneurs and uh, some public figures and uh, paleontologists who discovered the world's largest dinosaur and very other uh, very cool honorees. But what's nice about that is, I mean, it, Rowan um, in my alma mater is very, very focused on its business school, very focused on its, on its engineering. So it's a wonderful engineering program because the, the university's namesake was himself an engineer and invested heavily in the engineering program and all sorts of things. It's nice to see communications as a discipline you know, get recognized. It's nice to see that it's nice. The notion of, of career achievement in communications uh, is presented to, uh, to the students within that class and within the broader university community, because it is, it is a viable career. I, I mean, I, it's, it's one that's going through a lot of, a lot of uh, transition. It's one that I think is very fluid right now. I read, I read uh, a statistic. I, I can't source this, and I regret that, but um, I read a statistic that PR people outnumber uh, journalists five to one right now. You know, the sheer abundance of people going into this profession is going to force it into into new directions. Um, but it's nice to see that that we are a, a viable profession among the many others within the academic discipline. And I I, I felt that when when I was uh, named this. And I get a little photo with the president and a little plaque, and I'll show it to you next time you're here. Well, I will look forward to that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I like to say that I didn't choose my career; my career chose me. I, you know, started off as a journalist, as I think you mentioned earlier in our uh, conversation, and um, uh, but after a couple of years, quickly um, shifted over to the PR side and, and never regretted it. And yeah, I think it's uh, it can be a very rewarding career, and uh, and really echo everything you said. I think. I think that's a good place to wind things up. Agreement that uh, this is a viable career path. There are a lot of different opportunities. When I think about my daughter going into event marketing, which really falls under the you know overall communications umbrella, when you look at the various things you can do uh, in the in the field, the world is your oyster uh, to a certain degree. You know, you can choose what you want, specialize in, in different things. You can. Uh, go to work for an organization where you're, you know, you drill down a mile deep. You can work for an agency like we do, where it's, we don't go quite so deep. We are a little uh, a wider spread in terms of uh, subject matter, but I will uh, close there by saying thank you very much for uh, joining us. And as, as I mentioned at the top, um, thank you for being what is essentially my one-year anniversary guest. I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, you bringing me on board. <laughs> um, I very much enjoyed being a part of the firm and look forward to, uh, uh, to even greater success in the future. Well, so- we've, we've, we've known each other a long time, Leonard, but I'm, I'm delighted we're working together now as we are and, and I'm grateful for all you bring to the, to the firm. And uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me as your guest. It's quite an honor, quite a, an honor and quite a milestone to hit a year of a podcast. That's, that's quite a lot of content. And I encourage uh, listeners as someone who's done this myself to make sure you go back and, and listen to Leonard's podcast that predate this one because predate this one, because there's um, a, a lot of substance, especially for folks on the periphery of the profession. Well, I appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.
Thanks to Jim Cirillo from Jimium Group for our original music. Thanks to Rachel Greenberger, my daughter, for our original art. Please subscribe to, rate, and review this podcast. Send questions to WTSWTGT at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. And until next time, always be positive. money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big-